everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and I'm back from my hiatus. I wanted to take a break since, you know, it was getting into crunch time with my wedding and everything related to that, and I really needed to put my full attention in, you know, all that stuff. I'm sad that I missed all of October and all of November, but I'm so happy to be back researching and writing and recording all these episodes for all my spooky people out there. Um, and, uh, moving forward, I'm only going to be putting out two episodes a month so I can make sure that, you know, this day's fun and each story gets his proper time and attention. And this month, because, you know, it's the Christmas season, I'm only going to be putting out one episode, but beginning in the new year, I would like to, uh, continue with putting out two episodes a month. So with all that being said, let's get into the intro. Today's story is about Howard Unruh a young World War II veteran who felt like everyone in his neighborhood was out to get him, so he was determined to exact revenge on them all. The Walk of Death was one of the first mass shootings in American history, and still to this day the deadliest shooting in New Jersey history. Howard murdered 13 people and wounded three in his 20-minute stroll down River Road in East Camden in 1949. But before we get started today, let's hear our terrifying tidbit. Although mass shootings are not a uniquely American problem, according to everytownresearch.org, the gun homicide rate is 26 times higher here than anywhere else in the world. Also, the death rate doubles in mass shootings when assault weapons are used. In 2022 alone, almost 700 people were killed in mass shootings, and over 19,000 people have died during these events since 2015. Some proven solutions to these issues are rigorous background checks, more limitations for gun purchases for somebody that's already been reported for violence, A community intervention that could range from, you know, helping people who have been victimized by gun violence to outreach programs that help put kids in productive activities and making sure they know how to resolve their problems without invoking violence. There are many ways to decrease gun violence without the often screamed about fear of them taking our guns. Camden is located in the county chair of, you guessed it, Camden County. Directly across the Ben Franklin Bridge from Philadelphia, Camden now has a population of a little over 72,000. Most people rent, and the average home values are on $86,000, with a median household income of $30,000. This city is starkly different from other towns we've covered, like Westfield or even nearby Cherry Hill. Although Camden is known for its high crime rates, and not that this story is doing anything to improve that perception, the city has actually experienced a significant drop of crime in recent years. Due to a complete overhaul of their police department 10 years ago and the introduction of new officers that went through a very different form of training, In 2022, there were 3,000 fewer deaths in Camden than in 2012. This is the lowest their crime rate has been in 50 years. Between the aquarium and the popular music venue with the ever-changing name, don't count Camden out just yet. Every city has value, even the ones you've been socialized to look down upon. Howard Unruh was born on January 20th, 1921 to Samuel and Frida Unruh. His parents separated when he was very young, so his mother raised him and his brother James by herself. Howard graduated from Woodrow Wilson High School in 1939, where he was described as being soft-spoken and shy. In 1942, he enlisted in the U.S. Army to fight in World War II and served as a crewman. During his tour, Howard learned how to use a variety of weaponry. He occasionally served as a tank gunner, performed well in that role, and was considered to be obedient and efficient. He even won marksmanship and sharpshooter awards while he served in Italy, France, Austria, Belgium, and Germany. Strangely, he would keep notes of every German soldier he killed. He would include facts like when, where, and what their bodies looked like with excruciating detail. 
Howard was honorably discharged in 1945 and was not reported to have any mental illnesses. Unlike his peers, Howard didn't drink or smoke. Instead, he was very religious and often read the Bible, but he was also, like, really into guns. The New York Times article by Meyer Berger that was written when this event originally happened said these two qualities were paradoxical. And it's really interesting to see how far we've come culturally where now, you know, uh, uh, being really into guns and, and being religious are seen as almost synonymous to some. So, uh, that's fun. Anyway, after being discharged, Howard worked in a sheet metal factory and various other fields and actually had a girlfriend for a couple of years in his early 20s. They broke up because he told her that he would never marry her and that he was a schizo. After the breakup, Howard pursued a promiscuous streak of sleeping with many men. This was when he felt himself starting to stray from his pious nature. In 1948, Howard enrolled in the pharmacy program at Temple University in Philly, but he only tended for about three months. He didn't really have any goals or ambitions after leaving the military. He decided to stay in the lodging house he began renting to be closer to school from September of 1948 to the end of August 1949. The rent for his room was only $30. Now, I want to start laying the groundwork for explaining what kind of person Howard was. After the whole situation with the walk of death, police went to the lodging house to interview people who lived there or worked there. There was a black maid that worked in the lodging house named Ann Mitchell who told them that Howard would write the N-word in the dust on his desk in his room, knowing she would be the one to see it. He was being intentionally antagonistic to someone who would have been facing an immense amount of discrimination at that time, while he was hiding the main reason that he would have been discriminated against. Just something I figured I'd add to the story. Anyway, after leaving the lodging house, Howard moved back in with his mother, Frida, who was now 60 years old. Howard was 28, unemployed, and not looking for work. Frida supported herself and Howard by working at the Evanston Soap Company. They lived in a small three-room apartment that wasn't in the best shape. The paint was peeling on the walls, the floors were creaky and old, but that didn't prevent Howard from making the most out of his mother's space. In the cellar of the apartment building, he would frequently practice shooting his Luger at a target that he had set up. His room's walls were adorned with German bayonets, pistols, and various pictures of war equipment. There were also ashtrays crafted from German shells, clips for rifles, and a bunch of other stuff from his time in Europe. He was obviously obsessed with war paraphernalia and had a fascination with killing. And this, again, this is not to say that just because you have a bunch of war stuff in your room that you like killing people, but I think we'll soon realize that there were some correlations between how he decorated his room and what he's about to do. Howard tried to make friends around his neighborhood in Camden, but he just wasn't finding any success. He felt rejected and criticized, and he struggled to solve his own problems, which in turn caused him to have an increasingly intense rage towards the world. On Monday, September 5th, Howard went to see a double feature at a movie theater on Market Street in Philly. Because of traffic, he was unable to meet up with the man he had planned on seeing the movies with, so he sat alone in that theater, stewing in his anger. He returned home around 3 a.m., and before he fell asleep that night, he decided that he wanted to murder the people who had been talking crap about him. He had been fostering a growing hatred towards a list of neighbors and business owners on his street. Howard was convinced that there were disparaging whispers around town about him. His biggest rivals were Maurice and Rose Cohen. The Cohens were his neighbors, and Maurice owned a pharmacy in town on River Road. They often argued with Howard about how he would cut through their yard to get to his house. Rose Cohen would often complain about his loud music that would play late into the night. After he had returned home from the movie theater, he saw that the gate he had built to settle the drama between himself and the Coens had been removed. That was it for Howard. He had been keeping another list of all the things people did that hurt his feelings, whether they actually happened or not. 
His downstairs neighbors would throw trash behind the building. The shoemaker would bury trash too close to Howard's building. A random boy from the neighborhood stole some of his electricity to light up Christmas trees that he was selling in the street in front of Howard's apartment. The barber had inadvertently flooded Howard's cellar since he had dumped dirt in a vacant lot that had clogged up the drainage system near his house. Just a complaint and, and grievance after grievance. Allegedly, Maurice Cohen had called him a queer. Someone had seen him performing sexual acts on another man in an alley, and Howard was afraid that the neighborhood kids who bullied him would catch him on a date with a man in the city. Just any annoying or bothersome thing people did, could do, or he had suspected them of doing was written down. This miserable list paired with a loud paranoia of people gossiping about him was encouraging Howard to go down a dark path. He believed he was a constant target to everyone around him, so he figured he should get revenge on all who wronged him, and then some. Howard decided to do the shooting at 9.30 a.m. the following morning because he knew that most of the stores in his neighborhood would be open by that time. On Tuesday, September 6th, Frida was in between ironing and making breakfast for Howard. Howard emerged from the basement with a wrench, which immediately terrified his mother. He then proceeded to load a clip of bullets into his Luger and pack away an additional clip, a tear gas pen, and a knife in his pocket, along with 16 loose cartridges before he left the house. Frida was very disturbed about her son's disposition. She quickly made her way over to her friend, 70-year-old Caroline Pinner, who lived one block over. She was hoping Caroline's husband, Elias, could recreate the gate in the Unruh's backyard so that the gate yard drama with the Combs could finally be solved but it was too late. At 9.20 a.m. on River Road in Camden, echoes of gunfire reverberated off the brick buildings that lined the street. Frida heard the gunshots and rushed back to the Pinner's home right after she had decided to leave. She asked to use their phone while crying, Oh, Howard, oh, Howard, they're to blame for this. In her mind, if the Coens or everyone had just left him alone, then none of this would have happened. No, Frida. This is not a logical reaction to thinking that people are gossiping about you. On her way to the phone, she fainted and fell to the ground in the Pinner's living room. They placed her on the couch and tried to get her to wake up. At the same time, Howard was paying his first victim a visit at the shoe repair shop at the north end of his own street. The cobbler, 27-year-old John Polarczyk, was in a state of shock upon Howard's entrance to his store. Howard shot him in the stomach as he stood less than a yard from John, then shot him in the head when he realized that he was still alive after he had fallen to the floor. There was a small child in the store, but he ran and hid behind the counter until Howard left. The barber was next on the list. Inside of the barbershop, there was a carousel horse in the middle of the room for children customers. A six-year-old boy named Oris Smith, in the middle of getting a haircut, was sitting on the horse. As Howard entered the shop with his gun out, Oris's mother, Catherine, who was sitting on a chair next to her son, watched in horror. The barber, Clark Hoover, stopped cutting the child's hair once he noticed Howard lurking in the doorway. Howard proceeded to shoot Oris in the neck where he instantly died and then he killed Clark. As Catherine screamed in horror, Howard walked out of the shop and continued his rampage. The distressed mother scooped up her son's limp body and ran out into the street looking for help, but no one could really assist him at this point. The only other person outside at that moment was Howard and he was heading towards the local tavern. As all this was going on, a man named Dominic Latella, who ran a restaurant on the street, peered out the window to see what was happening. He saw Howard skulking towards Frank Engel's tavern, and then he saw Catherine Smith clutching Oris's body in her arms. Dominic began putting the pieces together of what was occurring on his street, so he hustled out of his restaurant and told his wife, Dora, to lock the door behind him and make sure everyone inside was safe. He ran to Catherine, took Oris from her arms, and laid him across the front seat of his car. He got Catherine in the back seat, and the three sped off to Cooper Hospital. All this was happening very quickly. People still weren't fully grasping what was going on as they heard gunshots ring out that morning. Not only had something of this magnitude never happened in Camden before, but it was rare to happen anywhere in the US at the time. 
there was an extra level of, of like bewilderment and fear because this type of incident was virtually unknown to the average person at the time. But back to River Road, Howard advanced towards Engel's Tavern. Frank had already locked the doors and the employees and patrons ran to the back of the building. Howard shot through the tavern's wood panel door. Frank then ran upstairs to grab his 38 caliber and peered out his apartment window, which was located above his restaurant. Finally, 40-year-old Maurice Cohen, the man that Howard hated the most, ran outside yelling and asking what was going on out there. Once he saw Howard, however, he ran back inside. An insurance agent named James Hutton wandered outside the drugstore to see what all the fuss was about. He, like many other people, thought he was just hearing a car backfiring. Of course, he ran right into Howard. Howard mumbled, excuse me, sir. And before James could react, he was shot in the head and stomach. He folded over and fell into the sidewalk, motionless. Somewhere during all the chaos of the day, Howard himself was shot. Watching Howard this whole time from his second story window, Frank Engel fired a shot at Howard as he stood in a narrow alleyway. The shot landed and got Howard in the hip or like leg region and he paused, but then he just kept walking and reloaded. Frank didn't fire again and he regretted it deeply. He told the New York Times later, I wish I had. I could have killed him then. I could have put half a dozen shots into him. I don't know why I didn't do it. Although Howard had killed another unexpected victim, he was not shaken from his original targets. Maurice Cohen knew Howard would still be after him, so he ran upstairs from the pharmacy to his apartment to warn his mother, 63-year-old Minnie Cohen, and his wife, Rose. The Cohen's 12-year-old son, Charles, was hidden in a closet while Rose threw herself into another closet and slammed the door shut. Maurice jumped from his roof down onto, you know, like, like the porch roof. Howard stood in the window after Maurice had jumped out and shot him, causing his body to roll off the roof and fall into the street. Maurice was dead. Howard stepped back into the apartment, shot through the closet door, and killed Rose Cohen. He didn't bother to open the door because he heard her body fall over. Minnie Cohen had run into an adjoining bedroom and tried to call the police for help, but Howard shot her in the head and body, and she fell into the bed. The son Charles did survive, however. Howard proceeded to walk down the stairs, reloaded, and continued his warpath. A TV repairman named Alvin Day happened to be driving through Camden that day, and although he had heard the sounds of gunshots and screams, he had no idea what he was actually hearing, so he wasn't scared off. Howard walked up to the car's driver's side window and shot Alvin to death. Howard strolled away from Alvin's car and ended up shooting and killing a two-year-old named Thomas Hamilton through his living room window. Thomas was playing in the curtains near his playpen and just so happened to look out the window. Howard, in his crazed mental state, thought the curtains was one of the people who had been dumping garbage in his yard, so he instinctively just shot through the window. Howard reloaded as shrieks and cries filled the air across the 3200 block of River Road. A group of children ran by him and screamed that he was crazy and other similar sentiments, but he didn't acknowledge them at all. The next target was the local tailor. Unfortunately, Tom Zagrino, the tailor who worked there, wasn't in the store at the time, so his wife, Helga, who he had married just a month prior, ended up being Howard's victim. She pleaded for her life on her knees before Howard shot her dead. Others heard her scream as the terror continued. There was a car driving down River Road that stopped at a red light. The passengers, 43-year-old Helen Wilson, her mother, 66-year-old Emma Matlack, and 9-year-old John Wilson, were obviously completely unaware of what was occurring on that street. No one could have told them as it was all happening in real time and it was 1949. Information traveled exponentially slower back then. Howard systematically shot and killed everyone in that car through the windshield. A clerk at a grocery store named Earl Horner locked his doors after a bunch of people came running inside the store, all complaining of a crazy man killing people. 
Howard walked up to the door, rattled the doorknob, and shot through the wood-paneled wall of the store, but luckily no one inside was harmed as they were all hiding behind the counter. An 18-year-old boy named Charlie Peterson was driving down the street with two of his friends as all this commotion was going on. They came across James Hutton's dead body on the sidewalk and got out of the car to inspect it. Like the cars from before, they had no idea what was going on in East Camden. Howard walked up and shot Charlie in the legs while the other two started booking it down the road to safety. Thankfully, Charlie survived. Howard finished his tirade by breaking into the home of 36-year-old Madeline Harry and wounding her and her 16-year-old son, Armand. Howard reflected on his actions later and said, They haven't done anything to me, yet I'm doing plenty to them. And he said this in a level, unshaking tone. Howard made it back to his apartment, which had now become under siege by over 50 police officers and nearly a thousand fuming bystanders. The assistant city editor of the Camden Courier Post, Philip Buxton, somehow obtained Howard's number and called him. Philip asked him how many people he had killed. Howard said he didn't know, but he said it looked like a pretty good score. Philip inquired why he was killing people, and Howard had a pretty similar answer. I don't know. I can't answer that yet. I'll have to talk to you later. I'm too busy now. And then he hung up the phone. Police made their way onto the roof of Howard's building and threw a couple of tear gas bombs through his window and there were bullets tearing apart the already crumbling walls. Once police took a break from firing, Howard appeared in the window, his frame haunting and unsettling. He yelled out to the crowd down below, Okay, I give up. I'm coming down. Sergeant Wright roared back, Where's the gun? Howard responded meekly with, It's on my desk up here in the room. I'm coming down. Dozens of guns were locked onto the front door of the Unruh's apartment. A few moments later, the door swung open and Howard appeared, hands in the air. The sergeant rushed up to handcuff the suspect. A policeman barked at Howard. What's the matter with you? You a psycho? Howard was completely unfazed by the question and bluntly responded, I am no psycho. I have a good mind. Once Howard had been successfully captured, the residents of East Camden all poured out into the streets, jeering at Howard and shrieking obscenities at him. An enraged, lynch him, flew out from the crowd, but that was not going to be the form of punishment for Howard. The police officers folded his tall, lanky build into the cop car, and they made their way back to the station. Some people chased after the cop car, continuing to scream and cuss at Howard, but eventually they fell back. They gossiped about what they had seen and shared horror stories, but soon the group disbanded, and everyone left to pick up the pieces of their rocked street. After being apprehended, the police noticed that Howard was bleeding and saw he had been shot, courtesy of Frank Engel. He was then rushed to Cooper Hospital where he was unsuccessfully treated right next to his victims. The doctors couldn't remove the bullet. Less than a day later, Howard was at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. As psychiatrists attempt to get to the bottom of what Howard did and, and why, Howard explained why he killed who he killed in a very matter-of-fact tone. He felt overall belittled and demonized by his neighbors. He said he felt guilty for his child victims, but the doctors evaluating him weren't convinced. He even had the nerve to say, murder is a sin and I should get the chair. Howard admitted to having made a hit list before he went out shooting that day, but he obviously deviated from his original plan once he got out there. The shooting was somehow both premeditated and a crime of passion. The biggest gripes, or I guess fears, with his neighbors were the rumors that he was gay, which, you know, he was. The night before the murder, he was about to go on a date with a guy. But the immense fear was... You know, not to give him, you know, any slack or, or sympathy or anything, but that immense fear was understandable because being openly gay at, you know, any time really, but especially in the 40s, was not really an option. Maybe he believed that any slight committed against him was tied to the secret knowledge that he was gay. No one really knew. Both Howard's brother, James, and his father, Sam, 
said that his stint in the military changed him for the worse. Sam said that it seemed that Howard had built a shell around himself we could never penetrate. He was irreparably changed after serving, which wasn't an uncommon experience. The psychiatrist reporter described him as being a master of suppressed rage who had a festering, smoldering anger within him. On October 20th, 1949, Howard Unruh was found not guilty of a reason of insanity because he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, so he never stood trial. He was placed in the room building, the high security section at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital where he stayed until 1993. Then he was transferred to a geriatric unit that had fewer restrictions. It is generally believed that if the walk of death had been committed today or even 30 years ago, Howard would have been considered legally sane and would have had to stand trial. According to Catherine Ramsland in Smithsonian Magazine, an author, professor, and director of the Master of Arts program in criminal justice at DeSales University, Howard did not show any symptoms of schizophrenia, but that was the only explanation for deplorable behavior that doctors had back then. She stated, quote, back then, Paranoid schizophrenia was kind of a trash can diagnosis. You could put anything in there, but the criteria have tightened up since. Unruh didn't have command hallucinations or anything like that, unquote. She figured that Howard probably had something more like a personality disorder and that although he was probably psychotic, he still could have gotten convicted. Howard died on October 19th, 2009 at the age of 88. He had spent the rest of his days from October 1949 onward in confinement, collecting stamps and watching television. Fun fact, apparently the Luger that he used to kill everyone was in a detective's locker that was then brought to his home after he retired. It wasn't found again until the early 90s and marked as evidence at the Camden County Prosecutor's Office. I'm glad that wasn't the only piece of evidence they had or that case could have gone much differently. As I stated before, the Walk of Death was one of the first mass shootings post-World War II. Before Howard, at least two had occurred before him, but one actually happened fairly nearby to Camden. A couple months prior to the incident in this story, in Chester, PA, a 30-year-old man named Melvin Collins killed eight people at a boarding house before turning the gun on himself. War trauma, entitlement, and a persecution complex swirled around in Howard's head, poisoning his thoughts and actions. He was completely desensitized to murder. In fact, he seemed to be fascinated by it. Death didn't shake him whether it was just happening around him or he was the one causing it. Also, from the detailed hit list to the real or perceived social rejection, there are many parallels between him and more modern mass shootings. Catherine Ramsland explained, quote, Unruh really matches the mass murderer profile. He had a rigid temperament, an inability to accept frustration or people not treating him as well as he wanted, and a feeling of isolation, all things people accept and move on from. He had a free-floating anger, held grudges, owned weapons he knew how to use, and decided somebody was going to pay. It's a typical recipe for internal combustion, unquote. Howard was a ticking time bob and had no sympathy for the lives he took. That was just retribution for everyone treating him so poorly. He was at the center of the universe and he was owed fair and positive treatment by everyone with whom he interacted. Luckily, organizations and movements like Every Town for Gun Safety and Change the Ref are making strides to spread awareness about the over-issue of gun violence in this country. For example, in May of 2023, there had been more shootings than days of this year. How can anyone be okay with that many people dying in their country every day? How can we actually call ourselves a world power when those stats are looming over our heads? It's absolutely insane. The key is to limit access to people who have previously shown concerning behavior and guide people away from thinking that others need to die for their problems to be solved. But anyway, that is going to be it for me today. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. If you don't mind, I'd love if you followed me on Instagram at GrimTalesGS. I'll see you all next time. Goodbye.